welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. A few years ago, my oldest son was playing baseball and he started to play at a more competitive level, and he was 11 at the time. And so he joined this team where there was more practices and more games and more tournaments. And the problem was they weren't winning games. And the coach was pretty laid back and would talk to them from time to time. But I could tell, like, you know, everybody was feeling, hey, we're not winning any games, even though we're putting in all this work. So this is one point, uh, and this has now become famous with one of the other dads who's now become a really good friend. We talk about this whenever we get together and laugh about it. There is this moment where we could see before the game, the coach is having a pregame speech, which he didn't actually have that often. And we couldn't hear anything, but we knew it was intense. It was serious. All the boys were crowded and listening. There was hushed tones, but it was serious. And lo and behold, they won. So we were really curious, like what was in the pregame speech? And so this is what we found out uh, through the kids to us, uh, to these 11 year olds that he basically said, look, uh, I've done everything I can. I'm not the reason we're not winning. Uh, the parents are starting to get mad. Your parents, it could get a lot worse. He threw in some expletives in there. And so I don't know what to tell you, but I've done everything I can. This is on you where we're at, <laughs> which for us has affectionately become known as the it's not me, it's you pregame speech. And who knew that that's what was needed? The it's not me, it's you pregame speech to get a win. <clears throat> Those words are not that foreign to us, are they? Um, I'll be honest with you, there are words I say pretty easily. It's not me, it's you. And I know this may be shocking to you what I'm about to tell you, but from the time I was young, I was really uh, good at talking myself into or out of anything. And I could spin sort of anything to make sure I looked favorable. And if it was a choice between me and other people that they looked less favorable than me, if I needed to get out of an argument or get out of an accusation, I actually went and got a professional degree in it. It's called marketing, but really it's spin doctoring uh, where you can spin anything to sound good or whatever. And I'll be honest, like actually joking aside, it is one of the areas where I've needed breakthrough, uh, to change, to be less defensive, to be less quick to say that. But I'm sure I'm not the only one. Uh, I'm sure I'm not alone in that. And part of the reason I know that is, uh, if you were with us in the fall, we talked about the fact that as human beings from the beginning of time, um, from the time we appeared on this beautiful earth, we had two default responses to the mess in our lives and the mess around us or for the purpose of our series, two default responses to feeling stuck, like we can't move forward, or feeling like we're being opposed or hindered in where we're trying to go. And that is shame and blame. Shame and blame are the two default responses that we have as human beings. Shame is pointing the finger at ourselves um, in, in, in an accusing way, in a, in a derogatory way, in a way that says you're stupid, you're no good, you can't do this, how could you? Like uh, heaping shame on ourselves um, for uh, something we've done or who we are or our, our way of being in the world or blaming ourselves, shaming ourselves for that. And, and that's, the, the, that's what shame. Blame is when we point the finger at others and say they're the reason, she's the reason, he's the reason, my mother or my spouse or my sibling or my boss or my friend or the circumstances, the pandemic, these are the reasons why I feel stuck. It's those things, it's those people. It's not me, it's you. It's not me, it's them. That is shame and blame are our default responses to feeling stuck and feeling hindered and the reasons we feel like we can't get breakthrough. And can I say this? I think it's actually easier than ever 
to say, it's not me, it's you, to actually go to blame. And here's why. For many good reasons, we have become aware that in our past, the people with power, whether they were families or pastors or priests or religious systems or institutions or uh, uh, politicians or whatever, people with power used shame to control and manipulate and subjugate and maintain their own power. That shame is a very destructive tool in the hands of parents and pastors and politicians and anyone with power. And so we are realizing, rightly so, that many of us battle with shame because it was heaped on us, because it was a tool used to destroy us. And we're finding out, well, God is not like that. God is not the one who berates us when we fail. He does not point this accusing finger at us all the time, trying to grind us down or control us or manipulate us. Like, that's not who God is. We're also realizing it's not healthy for us to live with that kind of shame in our lives, that we're not meant to be that way or feel a sense of shame because of our gender or because of our um, shortcomings or because of our skin color, because of our place in life or because of what we look like. That's not how we're supposed to live. And all of that is good. But what that has meant is it has left us primarily with the only default response, which is to say, if I feel stuck, if I feel hindered, it's not me, it's you. It's not with me. Like if I feel stuck and I can't move forward in life, it's because of that what's what person it is, because of what my family stuck me with, or if it's because of how that friend group is treating me, or because the system or the 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 our, our world that I'm in or the pandemic. That's it's it's not me, it's them, it's that. And there are lots of, I think, challenges and problems with that, but maybe the biggest one is this. Here's what that means. If it's not me, but it's you. If it's not me, but it's them. If it's not me, but it's that. It means that my breakthrough, my freedom is tied to somebody else's decisions and choices or circumstances. It means that if I want to get breakthrough, if I want to have freedom, I can't unless somebody else does something or changes something or unless the circumstances change. And that's a terrible place to be, right? The only thing worse than feeling stuck or feeling hindered is thinking I don't have any control over actually getting breakthrough because it's all out there. It's all what somebody else has to do. Well, the good news is that's not true. We are able to get breakthrough in our lives in the areas we need it, regardless of what other people decide to do. But it does mean that we have to be willing to let God speak his reality, his truth to us, which it's not easy, as I said to you this series. This is not going to be fun, but it is going to be good. And it's good because it invites us out of shame and blame into a whole new way, as we said this, of understanding truth, which is reality. A whole new way of seeing the world and seeing ourselves. Now, we began this journey a couple weeks ago talking about the fact that there are three dynamics in play um, working against our breakthrough. Three dynamics that we can say, this is why we feel stuck. This is why we feel hindered. They are the flesh, which is our fallen nature, the devil and the world, or the flesh, the world and the devil. The, the flesh being our fallen nature, the fact that we are beautiful, but broken. <laughs> we have good desires and bad desires. We have healthy things that we want and unhealthy things that they want, and they war with each other. Um, we find ourselves in a world full of people just like us, beautiful but broken, who also have desires and uh, ways of thinking that sometimes agree with ours, sometimes doesn't, but creates more conflict and more problems within us. And we have an enemy of our soul, the ruler of the unseen world, who is working against us as well. 
And we said this, and if you missed this, it's really important to go back and listen, that the way this works is the devil primarily works in our lives, not with red pitchforks and, um, you know, uh, possessing us with green eyes and spinning heads like the exorcist. He works as a liar, planting, sowing the seeds of deceptive ideas, which play to disordered desires in ourselves, that we attach ourselves to these ideas and we think that they're true even though they're false. We live as if they're real even though they're an illusion or they're a false promise of, of how the world works or how it will be if we do this or that. And it's normalized and exacerbated in a fallen, broken world. But that's not the only way they work together. They actually work, this flesh and the world and the devil actually work in a different way and one that I think, and it's possible, as I said to you, there's no silver bullet in this breakthrough thing. All of us need it. And it's going to come in little things and, and most often a bit at a time over, and we commit our whole lives to getting breakthrough. It's not a one and done thing. There's no silver bullet. There's no seven steps to, it's a process of a lifelong process of experiencing breakthrough and freedom. But this may be one of the most important, maybe the, for some of you, this will be the most important idea that you grab onto in this to actually unlock freedom and breakthrough in your own lives. And we're going to listen to a passage of scripture that's actually we're using quite a bit through this series. It's a letter written to a group of churches in Central Asia and what is known as modern day Turkey now, um, where the writer is explaining some dynamics that are going on in the community. And in and it actually uh, helping us understand uh, what's going on in this and, and why we would be um, uh, experiencing or feeling stuck and needing breakthrough. And in the middle, there's this little throwaway sentence that is actually the key to us understanding the whole thing. And so I want you to listen as it's read for us, and then we're going to talk through it together. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work. Do something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with any form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Now, if you've read this passage before, you've heard it before, or you never have, let me just summarize it very quickly. This is what the writer's saying to this community of people. And these are actually a community of Jesus followers living together, trying to figure out how to do life together now as Jesus followers in this new world. He says this, we're going to do some damage to others, and they're going to do some damage to us. <laughs> it's inevitable. Because of the flesh and because of the broken, fallen world we live in, we are going to do damage to others in our fallen nature, and they are going to do damage to us. And he lists a few specific examples of the behaviors and things that are going on. And here's the thing. Some of them are very overt, like rage or brawling. I mean, I don't know what church was like for them, but obviously there was stuff going on where there were sort of outward displays 
of hostility and conflict and anger. But then he also mentions some more subtle ones that, um, that were doing damage to each other, not speaking the truth to each other, but speaking falsely, which kind of implies like people not being honest with where they were at, lying about themselves, about where they were at, about what they were doing and why and what was going on in their lives, or lying to other people about them, not speaking the truth to others about themselves, about ways in which they were acting destructively or ways in which they were hurting one another. We've talked about in the past how we live in a culture that says love is love, but love is actually much more complicated than that. Love is actually sometimes meaning we need to tell other people that they're not okay, that they're not doing well, that we don't think they should be doing what they're doing because we love them, speaking truthfully. So there was this dynamic of like not speaking honestly about themselves or about each other. There are other things that are really under the surface kind of things that we're doing damage though. This idea of bitterness, right? Bitterness is an under the surface kind of thing. It's an inward resentment, frustration, anger, hostility, grudge holding towards someone, right? That has done something to us or who is um, maybe being more blessed than us or getting, uh, getting gifts that we're not getting or being in a better place than us who has, or, you know, favor of God or whatever, or just has things we want. There can be bitterness. It's under the surface. You don't see bitterness out outwardly. Eventually it does, but it's an under the surface thing. Slander is an under the surface thing. It's actually speaking the truth about others, but not to them, to other people <laughs> talking to others about others. That's slander, like speaking poorly about someone. And then the, the rage and the anger is when you tell the truth to someone about them. So saying something in a way that does damage or saying words that are damaging. Um, all of these things, like some of them outward, but a lot of them inward or under the surface or marking or malice. And malice is, is the, the word translated there is just really kind of a um, uh, things that are evil or wrong or ill towards others. It's relational ill is what that is, is what malice is. Um, and so some of that is over. It's some of that is subtle. But he's saying, listen, it is because of our flesh, we are beautiful but broken, and we interact with in very close proximity to people who are the same. We are going to do damage to others with our words or with our lack of words or with the way we say those words or our words to other people about them. And we are going to receive damage. And in response to that, we're going to do damage as well. I said, this is who we are. Now, maybe you're like, yeah, yeah, this is not new. This is human nature. Right. But... Here's what makes it all the worse. And here's what actually he's saying um, leads to the feeling stuck or hindered. The devil works with the damage we do to do even more damage. That's what he's saying. The devil works with the damage we do to each other to do even more damage. And this is one of the things that I think we don't see and we don't. And as I said, do you remember, we have so many sort of philosophical um, naturalistic objections with the devil and we go, oh, we write off the caricatures of the pitchfork in hell and the demons in, exorcist, in the exorcist and say, oh, that's not the devil. The work of the devil is not only subtle in telling lies, but subtle in terms of what he's describing here in this passage, that he uses the damage we do with each other to do even more damage. And he actually gives this example. He says this, in your anger, do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. In your anger, do not sin. 
Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Now, he's actually describing the way that the devil uses the damage we do with each other to do more damage. And the key is this word. He's saying, look, he uses anger as an example. Like you can, it's, it's not sinful to be, in, to be angry, but when you are angry, you have a propensity to do some damage, to sin. And when that happens, you can give the devil a foothold. Now that word foothold is the Greek word topos which actually uh, is translated in a number of ways that are super helpful because we're like, what do you mean give the devil a foothold? Give the devil topos. Here's the different translations if you look at the, the etymology of this Greek word. Land, dwelling, space, opportunity, and topos is often referred to temples or holy ground. So think about this for a moment. He's saying that you can and I can, in our process of sinning and doing damage to each other, and the way we respond and the words we use or the words we don't say or the lies we tell or the, the truth we obscure or the slander, the way we gossip about other people to other people or the way we respond to the hurt that other people have done to us. He says, when we respond in unhealthy, broken, and sinful ways, we can give the devil land, real estate, in our life. Now, he doesn't mean like physical land. It doesn't mean the devil knocks on your door as soon as you yell at your kids and they say, wants to move in. He's saying spiritually, in your heart, in your mind, we can give land or dwelling, uh, occupation, space, opportunity, and ground like, like we would give like to God, like a ho holy ground. One person said it like this. We are spiritual beings living in a spiritual world constantly giving spiritual access and influence to our lives by our choices. All of us. This is not just saying, oh, that's about those religious people who are spiritual. We are all spiritual beings. And in fact, we're finding, finding this out, right? That there is a connection between our mind and our body and our soul and our spirit and our emotions and even, you know, uh, research science, like the disciplines of science coming together saying, this is, we're all connected. We are very complex beings. The word spiritual isn't referring to a certain aspect of life. It's just saying it marks all of our lives. We are spiritual beings who live in a spiritual world and we are constant. You don't get to choose this. You're constantly giving access and influence into your lives by your choices. The only thing you get to choose is who is going to have access and influence in your life. You don't get to choose whether you will. Who has access and influence in your life? Is it going to be Jesus? Or is it going to be the flesh and the world and the devil? That's what this passage is saying. See, most people don't um, engage in ceremonies that give their souls to the devil, <laughs> right? Say, oh, well, someone's going, something's wrong in their life. Like, oh, it must have been that ceremony I went to that gave my soul to the devil. Now, I know that there are some places and whatever that people do that in. That's a different sermon. But most people don't do that. Chances are you haven't done it or you haven't done it in a long time. Or if you did, you got free of it. But he's actually saying, no, no, that's, that's not actually primarily how the devil gets access and influence in our lives. And he uses the, um, the sin of anger or sinning while you're angry as an example. He says, if you, because it's possible, right? If you're angry, you can, 
in your anger, sin against someone else. You can rage. You can say something cutting. You can say something hurtful. You can, um, we can even do damage with our hands and we can even do violence. But often, especially with our words, in our anger, we can sin and do damage to other people. And we can be angry and bitter and slanderous towards other people who have done damage to us. Right? See, so anger is a perfect example because it actually covers both ways. It covers the damage we do to others in our anger or the things we hold on to in anger because of what others have done to us. And he says, careful because something like that, it's just an example. It's not the only one. He's, it's in a list of a whole bunch of ways of behaving. You can give the devil ground. Through our sinful choices and responses, we are giving ground to the enemy of our lives. We're giving ground to him. That's what we do. When through our sinful choices and our responses to others, we can give the enemy access and influence into our lives. Coming back to this idea of land, um, this, you know, we talked a few weeks ago how those of us that have said, no, Jesus is king. Come, Jesus, be the king of my heart. Well, Jesus comes into our lives and begins to rule our hearts, but the whole land isn't turned over to him yet. There's all these little outposts of resistance and rebellion that are still going on in us. And he's saying, hey, you're going to give the enemy of your soul back the land that you gave to Jesus. Don't give it back. Don't give him ground. Don't give him land. Don't give him space. This is the idea of don't give the enemy room to move in your life. The word dwelling, it's scary. And, and again, it's not about um, possession, and we'll talk about that later. But it's just saying like a, someone who's there, uh, like an ongoing, someone who dwells, they're living there constantly, right? So it isn't just about influence, it's about an ongoing influence. That's what the, the, the word dwelling means. Opportunity, man, what a word, right? Don't give the devil leverage, influence in your life to push you in directions you don't want to go. And don't give the sacred ground that belongs to God over to the enemy. He's saying, we can do this. It's possible for us to do this in our sinful choice and the way we respond to other people. And here's the key in this. He says, don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. Now, that's not like a, a specific reference to a day. My sister and I had this written, unwritten rule. We said, if we told a lie to them or someone, we said we said something and we said we were just... Uh, you know, try to mess them up or, you know, take them for a ride or whatever. As long as we told each other before the sunset, before the end of the day that we were just joking, then it was okay. But if we didn't, it was a lie, <laughs> which I don't know, maybe we heard that in one of my dad's sermons. That's the only part we heard. Sorry, dad. Um, right? But it's not talking about that. This idea of the sun going down while you're still angry is describing remaining in a place of sin, remaining, letting something continue on, right? That's why he's saying there's a ground thing here. There's an occupation. There's a dwelling. There's an ongoing influence, which is to say this, we give the enemy ground when we have unconfessed sin and unforgiveness in our lives, right? Unconfessed sin is sin that goes on. The sun is going down. The sun's coming up. It's going on and we are not confessing it to other people. We're not bringing it to the light. We're not confessing it to God. More importantly, sometimes we're not confessing it to others. Someone said, why does it seem so easy to confess our sins to God and so hard to other people? Is it possible we haven't really confessed it at all? When we confess it to others, it actually makes us realize, wow, I actually have to say this out loud. I actually have to admit this, right? Unconfessed sin is an ongoing, sun setting, sun rising way of staying and remaining and not owning our stuff, not actually admitting 
we've done damage. And unforgiveness is a way of holding on to day after day, sun setting, sun rising, the offenses that others have done to us, allowing for what? Bitterness and slander um, and grudges to take place, right? That's why he says, don't let the sun go down. This is about staying in an ongoing place. He says, when we do, we give the enemy topos, influence, ground, access, influence in our lives through unconfessed sin and unforgiveness. Now, people will say things, oh, well, can a Christian be possessed? You know, um, it's not the right question. I understand why people ask it. But again, we're thinking about The Exorcist and those kinds of books and movies when we ask those questions. Um, the possession implies, right, like taking over, commandeering, eyes turning green, or ownership. Ownership is, cl- is clear. He's talking to a group of people who belong to Jesus Christ. He says, he begins with, you're all part of the body. And we know that that means the body of Christ. You belong to each other as members, body parts of the body of Christ. You belong to Christ. He says, the Holy Spirit given to you is the seal or the proof that you belong to God. We talked about um, last week about how we are adopted. We are chosen. We are in the family of God. That is not up for grabs here. That's not what's being talked about. These are people who are belonging clearly to God. This is about influence, not ownership. Is it possible for a Christian through their choices and through their responses to other people, is it possible for someone who follows Jesus to still make decisions in their own and their responses to other people to give increasing access and influence to the enemy of their soul? Yes, that's what he's saying. He's talking to people who follow Jesus. He's saying, don't do this. You're giving topos, you're giving ground, you're giving influence to the enemy in your life. Therefore, right, if he's saying, don't let this become an ongoing sunsetting, sunrising reality in your life, unconfessing unforgiveness. Therefore, the regular practice of confession and the difficult pursuit of forgiveness are keys to our breakthrough the ongoing practice of confession and the difficult pursuit of forgiveness are keys to us getting breakthrough. And I can't tell you how many times in terms of being involved in prayer ministry or just being involved in the pastor and meeting with other people and also looking at my own life, my own family, how often our stuckness in life is actually related to an issue of an unconfessed sin or unforgiveness. And it's not punishment or whatever. It's just, it's just the way it happens. We have given ground. He's saying, what's happening? Why are we feeling stuck? Is it that we have to be perfect? No, that's not. He's Obviously, these people are not perfect. He's saying, don't remain in that way. You're giving influence to the wrong one. You're allowing the flesh and the world and the enemy of your soul to have ground influence and access in your life, to have space, to have room to move, to have leverage with your emotions and your mind and your relationships. Don't do it. Instead, the regular practice of confession and the difficult pursuit of forgiveness, and I say difficult pursuit and not regular practice of forgiveness because it is not easy. It is a pursuit of something. And both of these things take time. They're like opening up the rooms in our house. You know, if you want to think about this occupation or dwelling or whatever, think about your life as a house. 
And confession and forgiveness is like making sure all the rooms are open, all the blinds are open, the sunlight's in, the dust and the garbage and stuff is cleaned out, right? When we, when we have unconfessed sin or we have unforgiveness, things we're holding against other people, it's like there are certain rooms in the house that are locked up, places we don't go, places we don't think of, where we say, nope, Jesus, I'm not dealing with that. No, nope, I'm not forgiving that person. No, nope, I'm not going to let go of that. Or I'm not going to acknowledge that that thing is there. And in that closed room, dust accumulates and mold and rats and like all the gross stuff you can think about. Like if you left parts of your house, just neglected them. Uh, confession and forgiveness are ways of throwing the doors open, saying, I don't want to have anything that could have an opportunity that could give space or ground or dwelling for the enemy in my life. And so it's the regular practice of opening the doors, cleaning them out, and letting the sun in. A confession is something we can do on a regular basis. Forgiveness is something we have to pursue and grow in. Um, and we have things like prayer ministry in our church for that, for people who feel stuck with that. Um, I preached a series a few years ago called Finally Free, which is just kind of a longer treatment of this issue that is not a quick or easy thing, but is such an important key in getting breakthrough in our lives. And see, when we think about confession, we don't have to be afraid of shame right? Coming back into, because the enemy works to, to shame us with broad and vague guilt and paralyze us into not doing anything. That's not the way the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit convicts us specifically and says, that relationship, those words you said, that person, you probably need to go back. Someone said that to me years ago and helpful. I said that if you feel a vague sense of guilt or shame, that's not God. <laughs> that's the enemy trying to cripple you. But if you've convicted about something, know you need to do this. It keeps coming back. You can't shake it. That's probably the Spirit inviting you in to do something that will bring you freedom. And here's the thing. We actually know these are not two separate activities. Confession and forgiveness are inextricably linked. And here's how we know, because he ends this whole section saying, forgive just as in Christ God forgave you. Why did God need to forgive you? Because you had things you needed to confess, right? When we, and here's, think about this. When we practice confession on an ongoing basis, are we, do we become more aware of other people's faults or more aware of our own? Become more aware of our own. And the more we are aware that we are a broken, fallen person capable of doing damage with our words and actions or inaction, we're more forgiving and understanding when other people do that to us. Why? Because we know we are also flawed and frail and fallen, right? It's not meant to drive us into shame. It's actually meant to lead us into becoming more gracious people. The more you confess on a regular basis, not in a browbeating and, oh, I'm sure, and I, it's my fault. No, just specifically just letting the Holy Spirit direct you to the things you need to do on a regular basis. The more you are gracious when someone else comes and needs repent, uh, forgiveness from you, or you are willing to go and actively do that because you're more aware. They're tied together. They are linked by the grace of God to us, right? And this is the beauty of it. One of the Psalms you read in the daily reading uh, earlier this week or last week was Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us, <laughs> right? That's a beautiful picture. This is the grace of God to us, not shame at all. He just doesn't see our sin anymore when we confess. He, when he, when if you're looking east, you can't be looking west, I like to say, right? That's how far away. When he sees us, he doesn't see our sin and our shortcomings. He loves it. It is the faithful, unchanging love of God as we, his children. His, he is faithful, 
the scriptures say, he is full of grace. He does not change his affections towards us based on how we act. And when we come and confess, we remember that's who God is, faithful, unchanging, unwavering in his love and commitment. And when we encounter a God like that, we are able to be like that, faithful, unwavering in our commitment of love to our brothers and sisters, to each other, to our spouses, to our children, to our family, to people in our lives. That's why these things are so connected. Now for this next week, of course, as always, I'm going to encourage you to use the daily reading to help you. It's going to lead you into some practices of confession and give you space to let the Holy Spirit identify anyone that you need to forgive. But before we move on to that and before this moment is sort of passed, we want to actually take time uh, in our gathering to do that today. And the site pastor is going to lead you in a, in a process of um, a confession and, um, and just inviting the Holy Spirit to put his finger on whatever it is that um, God wants to say to you in that. Um, but we're going to sing first a song that uh, is an invitation to come. It says, oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide, right? The invitation to come and confess uh, and receive forgiveness is based on the Father's love for us and the work of Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection. And so just use this as an invitation, and then you're gonna have a chance to just create space for the Holy Spirit, um, not to bury you with guilt and shame, but just to direct your heart to the places and spaces and relationships and people and interactions where you may need to confess or where you may need to forgive.
So I want to invite you now to just take a moment, close your eyes, and we're going to begin first with just picturing the face of God looking at you. For many of us, the expression on his face, you know, we see expressions like disappointment, frustration, anger, distance, but those are lies. And so we just want to begin with the truth and help you see in your imagination, in your mind's eye, the face of God looking at you with love, with delight, with the smile of a father who dearly loves his child, you, his son, his daughter. And in light of that, you can just ask God through his spirit this question, Lord, is there anything that I need to confess? Anything I've said that I shouldn't have? Anything I should have said that I didn't? Anything that I said in a way, in a tone that I shouldn't have said it? Is there anything I've done that other people know about or maybe no one knows about? Is there anything I've confessed maybe a million times before? Just invite him to just take a moment and let him put his finger on it. You don't need to try to churn it up. Just ask him, is there anything I need to confess? Whatever that may be, you can just pray a prayer. It says, Lord, I'm sorry. Lord, forgive me. Lord, thank you for your grace. Lord, give me the courage to go and make whatever needs to be made right. And then because the Father not only loves you, but he loves all the other people in your life. Just asking this, Lord, is there anyone I need to forgive? Is there a word that they said that I'm hanging on to? An action or something they didn't do that I've been bitter about or resentful about or keep thinking about? Maybe a small thing or a recent thing, maybe a big thing and an old thing. Just ask him, you don't need to work hard, just listen. Lord, is there anyone I need to forgive? Anything comes to mind, if, if it's small, if it's something you feel like you can just let go of now, you just pray a prayer that says, Lord, I release that. I release that person. I forgive them. I don't need to judge them. 
I can let you sort out <laughs> what needs to be sorted out in their lives. You can just pray a prayer of releasing, forgiving, remembering that Jesus died for that sin as well as yours. And if there is something that you feel like is going to take you time, just say, Lord, give me the courage to ask for help so that I can begin to forgive this person. Jesus, thank you for your grace, for your love that is so faithful, so rich, so abundant, so freely poured out. Thank you that when you forgive us, you completely remove our sin from us so that when you look at us, you don't see it. You just see the son and the daughter you love. Thank you that there is the power of forgiveness in your name. And help us be able to be people who regularly confess and regularly pursue forgiveness. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Amen.